Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to the rise and fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my brand new podcast, Beast, The Murder of Nora Sheehan. Streaming now, wherever you get your podcasts. It's all those little things that make up their grief for Ashing that we haven't necessarily had the chance to hear about yet. This has had such a domino effect on not just Ashing as the victim, but her family. She spoke about how Joseph Puska kind of controlled not just Ashing's death, but the aftermath. She said that they couldn't even hug her or touch her. They had to spend less time with her as the days went on in the mortuary. But he seemed to be kind of laughing and smirking to himself before the court even began, which I hadn't seen in him before. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. Joseph Puska heard directly today from the loved ones of Ashling Murphy about the devastating impact his crime has had on their lives. Ashling's boyfriend, her sister and her mother all gave victim impact statements as Puska was sentenced to life in prison for Ashling's murder. Today I'm talking to Crime World's Claude Amini about the harrowing and emotional scenes in the Central Criminal Court today. I'm Niall Donald and this is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. So today we've heard the harrowing victim impact statements from Ashling Murphy's family um, and also her, her boyfriend, Ryan Casey, which, you know, I think at one point we, we have the headline in some of the papers, May You Rot in Hell. And I think it really brings home the just just the, the life-changing, devastating impact Joseph Puska's actions have had on Ashley Murphy and her family. Yeah, so like we kind of said yesterday, this is the first time that the family actually got to speak about Ashing. It's the first time we've really heard about Ashing during the trial. And that's something her sister referenced um, in her victim impact statement was the kind of the, the clinical nature of the criminal justice system and how victims, you know, aren't centred as any part of that. Um, 
So we did hear from um, Ashing's partner um, on the witness stand today. He brought up a picture of Ashing again onto the stand with him. He read out his own statement. He read out his own statement, yeah. Because obviously in, in many cases, the guards will, will sometimes read it out for people if they don't wish to do it themselves. But he obviously made the point and wanted to... to to, to say this right in front of Joseph Puska, obviously. Yeah, so it was highly emotional. I mean, I suppose Joseph Puska had um, an interpreter with him and throughout the trial, he's had the same interpreter who kind of spoke to him in kind of whispered Slovakian the whole way through, would just constantly kind of in, in her ear and straight out to Joseph Puska in Slovakian. But with this translator, he had a different one today and she sort of wasn't whispering, she was speaking um, and she was kind of, was waiting for somebody to finish and then she'd summarize and tell him. So that kind of was a bit of, bit of a, a distraction for some of the victim impact statements. So for Ryan's in particular, there was a lot of high emotions um, in the room. I mean, he had that photograph of Ashing, the one we're all so familiar with of her holding her violin. Um, and he put that up on the stand and that was there present for for three victim impact statements. So it was himself. Um, her mother, Catherine, gave a victim impact statement to the court, but that was read by a Garda. And then her sister, Amy, got up and gave kind of a very, it was very poetic, um, but very harrowing um, victim impact statement that she gave. So just to read some of, of what Ryan Casey said, I mean, he described them, I think, as evil, evil, evil. He just said, because of you, I've lost my Ashling. Because of you, I will never get to marry her. Because of you, I will never hear her voice again. Because of you, I will never see her smile again. Because of you, I will have to carry on without her. I mean, it really, um, you know, he, he also, he referenced how Joseph Puska held himself as well, I think, and spoke about him maybe smiling and not showing remorse during the trial. Yeah, I mean, that was the point in which kind of at this point the, the translator was still speaking to Joseph Puska. So at this point, he kind of shook his head as if to say no. Um, he went through in detail his relationship with Ashton Murphy. You know, he described that how they met each other. You know, they were only going out for a year and they decided to split up because they were, uh, as he kind of joked, they were so busy being teenagers um, and they eventually kind of rekindled the romance in 2016. So they'd been together ever since. Um, he described the last moments that he saw her, which was on the 10th of January, the day before she died. And he spoke about how she had brought groceries to the to his family home because they were all had COVID or there was COVID in the house and they couldn't leave. And he sort of thought that, he, he said that he frequently thinks back on regret of that day that he just didn't give her a hug um, or didn't hold her and, you know, didn't let go over. And, um, you know, he spoke a lot about their dreams and their hopes for the future. Um, it emerged that they had been that if you know a few days later they were due to fly to Manchester together and they had plans to move to Dubai for a few years where Ashing really wanted to teach and the week that she died they were due to meet up with an architect to discuss the plans for their home and you see this is what what a lot of people who are are you know victims of you know who are in in relationships with victims of crime whether it's family or, or romantic relationships this is what they're left with after a murder um, they're left with this kind of uh, feeling of guilt, despite their absolute innocence and the fact that they couldn't have do, done anything. I mean, we heard that last week, of course, with, with, the, with the Jason Corbett's kids. How they're left with that feeling that they could have done something. And it's really, really uh, 
you know, some of that comes true and it's, it's in a way, people's lives freeze at the moment that crime is committed. And Absolutely. that's kind of what he is describing there. Absolutely. I mean, her sister did speak about that as well, how Ashing was so selfless and how she did everything for everyone. And yet they felt such guilt because they weren't there to hold her hand or wipe her tears in her final moments. Um, and as well, that kind of freezing that moment in time, you know, Ashing's sister, Amy, opened up her victim impact statement talking about how um, their job as children was to set the table for five. She kind of referenced that throughout um, that they set the dinner table every day for five people and they still do that. Um, there was a moment as well where um, she spoke about, I think it was her mother actually had mentioned that that evening after Ashing Murphy had died, um, her uncle was in the house and went to light the fire and he opened up the oven and found her dinner from that day in there. And all those kind of things, those little moments you know, they're they're stuck in, in time for the family. And I suppose it's all those little things that make up their part of their grief for Ashing that we haven't necessarily had the chance to hear about yet that this has had such a domino effect on not just Ashing as the victim, but her family and the kind of the outward spread of that ripple of of devastation that he's yeah, caused. See, what it does, what it tends to do, and I suppose it's a it's a it's trauma really. But it just freezes people's lives in that moment. Like if you have an, uh, an elderly relative maybe that dies of natural causes, it's a different type of thing. Absolutely. But that kind of violent act, particularly with somebody so young, um, they're just left with a before and an after. And the family will always carry that. Yeah. Obviously today, um, Joseph Puska is sentenced to life in prison. Um, you know, that, that, that means he'll be in prison for the foreseeable future. But there is a reality that he will at some day, at some point get out again. He may then may be free to leave the country or whatever he wants to do. And the, the, her family, of course, are, are not going to be able to do that. Now, her mother didn't speak directly to court, as she said, but there was a, a statement read out on her behalf. What did she uh, have to say? Yeah, so she kind of spoke about Ashing and her memories of her. She described her um, as somebody who loved music and fashion. She said the house was always alive with the music that she played with her fiddle. Um, and it was something that she loved passing on to her younger students. Again, she kind of spoke about how Ashing's life was so vast and busy and she was always, it was filled up with, you know, work, with school. Um, it was something that she had such a huge passion for and it gave her a purpose in life. And she spoke about how... Um, she misses going to Ashing's matches. She was a camogie player and as well as her concerts, she was a um, major part of the traditional Irish music circuit in Ireland. Um, she spoke about how Ashing was the chief organization, organizer in the house. She often organized to take her sister and her mother out to, on spa days and holidays. Um, she took them to different places. She actually, the week before she died, they had went to the Guinness storehouse as a, as a family gift that Ashing had got them. She spoke about how she loved catching up with her family. She was no, wasn't the sort of person that you could row with. She just was so lovely. And her boyfriend Ashing said that, or her boyfriend Ryan said that as well, that he had never really rowed with her or bickered. And it was just a testament to their love and respect that they had for each other and the kind of person that Ashing was. Um, she kind of spoke about how Ashing was the the dream teacher uh, that any child's parent could hope for their child to have. Um, there was a huge kind of conversation or a huge mention of the fact from everyone that spoke um, about the impact of Ashing's death, how their motivation in life is just gone. They they feel like they've got nothing to live for. They've spoke in depth as well about the trauma that they've experienced in terms of those lasting effects of such a violent crime, um, having nightmares, fear of going outside, um, hearing Ashing screams, 
Ryan had spoken about how he can't even look at knives anymore. He can't watch anything with a bit of violence in it. He'll have, you know, he has to use a knife to cook or to eat his dinner or whatever. But after that, it has to be taken away from him because his mind just spirals, he says, into these horrible places. So, I mean, these are very, like, when you're listening to that as a, you know, as a neutral who don't, never met Ashling Murphy or don't know her family as such, it's still very emotive, like, I mean, it's Absolutely. very hard not to be moved as just as a person sitting there. What about Joseph Puska? Did he seem to react? Did he... There was. There was more reactions from him today than I think throughout the whole trial. There was reference to him smirking and laughing at tr- throughout evidence. Um, her sister Amy mentioned how when Dr. Sally Alcalis was reading the post-mortem, she said that he seemed to be smirking and laughing and almost enjoying hearing the brutal detail of it again. She spoke about how Joseph Puska kind of controlled not just Ashing's death, but the aftermath. She said that they couldn't even hug her or touch her. They had to spend less time with her as the days went on in the mortuary because she hadn't been embalmed in case the prosec- or in case the defence needed to um, carry out their own post-mortem on her body. Um, I mean, there was a point where he was kind of, sh- and again, he, where he was kind of shaking his head. The near well, Before Amy got on the stand, um, she had said to um, Mr. Bowman, so the defence counsel, and asked him if he could maybe ask the translator to stop speaking because she was speaking rather than whispering and it was very distracting. So she had asked for that. So Joseph Puska didn't hear the full emotion and the full impact of what Amy had to say. Um, I don't know if that's going to be read to him at a later date, but when Ash or when Amy specifically turned around to look at him, at that point she did try and and you know begin translation again, but was soon stopped. But he did, he was shaking his head at the idea that he was smirking and joking. He also kind of seemed surprised by the fact he was being handed down a life sentence. You know, it was almost like he was shocked and couldn't believe it. I mean, even at the start, and again, I don't know if this was a case that he decided, well, I'm going down for this now, so I might as well, you know, bask in the notoriety of it or not. But he seemed to be kind of laughing and smirking to himself before the court even began, which I hadn't seen in him before. Um, but he was a lot more reactive than he had been previously. So in 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 the sentencing hearing, um, initially the judge will have opened it up. He went through some of the evidence again um, to give a kind of a legal opinion. Obviously, you know, a jury make a decision. They they decide guilty or not guilty, but they don't give a reason necessarily, I suppose. They don't sum up the evidence. So the judge did do that in the aftermath of this conviction. And he basically had another um, sort of, he had a goal really at the, the, the defence as it was put forward, not obviously as instructed by Joseph Puska, clearly. Um, saying, in particular, he spoke about some of the, the key defence uh, claims, one of them being that that Joseph Puska wasn't in a position to to be uh, interviewed by Gardy in the hospital. He sort of basically said that, that, you know, the world isn't perfect and the guards, you know, came in good faith and they got this comment. What else did the judge kind of focus on? Yeah, so we actually, I'd say through spent about an... <sighs> I'd say he spent about an hour and a half going through the evidence again. Um, he spoke about the admissibility of... There was kind of these issues that kind of were raised in the yeah. pre-trial and he spoke about those. So he spoke about um, the admissibility of the CCTV um, and he said that there is, you know, a scale of privacy and, you know, yeah. the bottom of that scale is, you know, CCTV in this case, which is just people going about their everyday lives, yeah, they're so walking, they're... This is a defence that, 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 that Fat Freddie Thompson, for example, put up that, you know, he's just walking along the streets and and the state have no right to collect all this information about him. 
I mean, it's been tried again and again in court and it's nearly always rejected on the basis that, you know, if you're investigating a murder, that that right sort of supersedes a normal person's right to to not be monitored by the state. Exactly, yeah. And he kind of said that as well, that there was kind of a fatigue about having to kind of go over this again and again. But he also kind of, you did mention um, on the other scale of that, the right to privacy in a public place in particular he was he mentioned um a footballer that had a medical emergency on on the pitch and at that point you know there's 40 50,000 people the media are watching at that point um even though it happened in public he would still have a right to privacy because it was a medical emergency so he did say there was that difference there um and he also said you know the only kind of people who would have these specific interests in the right to privacy would be people he says that are kind of um nuts about the authority of of the state agencies yeah. And, and the surveillance state and stuff like that. But he said, you know, usually when it comes to, a, you know, in the hypothetical situation, if, if if it was a family and they would never say, um, oh, don't look at her phone or don't look at CCTV to find them because the right to privacy is more important than them being found. So he was trying to like, exactly. just a balance, explain it in that way. Obviously, exactly. The, the investigating a murder is, is a hugely important thing. Absolutely. Um, he also kind of went into those statements that were given in hospital and he did, he did say that, you know, while yes, it may have been a perf- in a perfect scenario, they would have recorded the um, admissions. But again, it wasn't an interview. It was only kind of when they were um, executing the warrant that in an ideal world, yes, they could have recorded it. But he said also the chance of those being, um, you know, being brought through, dragged through that pretrial process to see whether or not they were admissible yeah. in court. That would have been another thing that they would have had to go through, even if they did record it. Yeah. Um, and he did kind of um, mentioned that they did have this independent witness and he was satisfied that the independent witness was consistent and clear and concise in what they were saying and confident and that independent witness was the translator who Joseph Puska specifically told to translate his his words um, exactly. Yeah, he's a neutral party if you want. He exactly. Doesn't, doesn't gain anything by telling anything other than the truth. Um, so I suppose all of this, the judge's summations do become relevant if there there is an appeal. Was there anything else that he that he focused on in particular? Um, um, he kind of, he the only other thing kind of that he mentioned was, you know, when he was given his kind of summary of notes at the end, he did want to say certain things so that they could be brought into consideration in terms of parole, etc. down the road. Um, he said that, Ryan's statement. So Ryan had said, you know, it, it was unfair that Joseph Puska was only getting a life sentence. And in this country, it wouldn't even be 23 years, the 23 years yeah. of life that Ashing Murphy had. He kind of mentioned that that was the law, that was the way it is. However, he did wish that um, there was some cases where it could be considered. He did mention, obviously, in the UK, you have the option of um, handing down a, a whole life term, whole life yeah. tariff. Um, and he did express his, his wishes for that in the future. Um, he also said that um, he wanted to note for the sake of the lives or for it being yeah, when he comes a life for, sentence. Yeah, yeah that for when he comes around for appeal that he doesn't know why, the why of yeah. why Joseph Puska did what he did. But he wanted to note that the question of his return to society, unless he's old and frail, needed to be really reconsidered. So, I mean, this is what you see is the difference maybe between if Joseph Puska pled guilty and explained why he did what he did, that becomes part of the rehabilitation because he's taken responsibility for his actions. He then maybe could look at it in terms of, you know, undergoing therapy or whatever. And then the state can say, well, this person has done this heinous thing. However, you know, he's shown signs of rehabilitation. Joseph Puska has shown none of that. No. 
by all, by putting the family through what really was a pointless case. Yeah. And they can, they've spoken about the trauma even then. And I suppose what the judge is saying is without him making admissions, how can you be sure of his rehabilitation? And you can't. I mean, he's also referencing there probably um, in the UK where a lot of people get life sentences in the same way, but they can get a minimum sentence mm-hmm. as well. Where you, or as you said, they can get a whole life term where they're not ever meant to come out again, but they can also say get a life sentence with a minimum serving of 30 years, for example. Mm-hmm. And that's not available to our, in Ireland. However, it is under discussion um, and it may well become available where you could give a minimum ter- tariff with the life sentence. Um, and I think it's something that certainly you're here, uh, Ryan Casey there, he's, he's certainly putting it putting that out there that that would be something that would ease their mind because of course uh joseph busk is quite young and you know who would want to see him on the streets as a man in his mid-50s certainly very much capable of of dangerous actions then absolutely i mean and especially without that um admission and without that um remorse for what he's done i mean i suppose how can you help somebody who's not admitting to admitting that to them, maybe he's not even admitting to himself that that's what he did. I mean, and you can't, you can't terrify somebody like that unless they're willing and engaging. Exactly. I mean, there's no point sending people to therapy unless they're, they want to do it, you know? Um, So he was ultimately, he was taken away in, in terms of an appeal. There was probably no mention of it either way, was there? No mention of an appeal, no. I mean, it is probably assumed that he will try and appeal a sentence. I will note as well, like there was none of his family were actually in court today and had been mentioned by Amy that she did wonder how his family could even look at him. There was numerous mentions and rightfully so um, branding him as a monster and evil. Um, You know, Ashing's sister, you know, mentioned we gave you an Irish welcome and you repay the country by taking away somebody so um, young and loving and loyal. Um, And it was a heartbreaking um, listen, there was a lot of emotion in the court. I seen one of the, at least one of the jurors that I remember from being there was back to hear the sentencing. The family left the court to an eruption of applause. Um, Ashing's, I believe her father, who was sitting right behind me, um, called him a bastard, <laughs> rightfully yeah. so, um, as he was being taken away. And there was a lot of, I suppose at this point, there was more anger yeah. Um, to, towards Joseph Puska, I would say, um, as opposed to that heartfelt emotion and sadness that was felt throughout the trial. Yeah, because I mean, look, he's taken the most destructive route for that family. Absolutely. Probably. I mean, there's no, whatever, the act of itself is if, if, unforgivable, but he's taken the most unforgivable route as well. Um, I mean, it's a, look, it's a very harrowing case. It's really moved a lot of people. And, you know, it's, it's you know, whether we see an appeal or not, you know, of course, people have a right to appeal any case. That's part of the judicial system. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately for the family, it puts them through it all again if he does. Um, and, you know, we can hope that he would maybe have listened to them today and not go down that route. Yeah, I mean, we can only hope, but only time will tell. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much, Claudia. Thank you, now. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Clodamini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.
Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take the Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume the Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume the Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.